What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Somebody who was a poet in India would end up being a cleaner here. Someone who, you know, was an actor in India would end up driving a bus here. So there were a lot of dreams that were deferred. And I was terrified. I would look at these women's lives that had been curtailed and thought, I just don't want that to be me. I do not want to wake up at 50 and be littered with lost potential and broken dreams. Racism wasn't new to me. I experienced it, I knew about it, we lived it. For the first time, I understood what the roots of racism were because I think what Harper Lee does so brilliantly is in her portrayal of the Ewells, who are, of course, the white trash family that accuse an innocent black man of a crime. I felt sympathy for them. Now they will look at us and go, you are so lucky. Yes, we are. So I think with every generation it gets better, but you must never forget that there's always more to improve. Like John Boyega so eloquently showed us, sometimes you just do have to say it like it is. Hello and welcome to this live podcast recording of the now award-winning podcast, How I Found My Voice. I'm Samira Ahmed and the idea is I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shape someone's success. So how did politicians, artists and performers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today, as you know, is Mira Sayal, an actor, screenwriter, playwright, award-winning novelist and comedian. Her 1990s BBC sketch show, Goodness Gracious Me, transformed British comedy. Her international Emmy award-winning chat show, The Kumaras at Number 42, set a template that was licensed all over the world. Her first film script, Bhaji on the Beach, helped launch the film career of director Gurinder Chadha. And as a novelist, she's become part of the school curriculum. Her debut novel, Anita and Me, drew on her own roots growing up in a Punjabi family um, in the West Midlands in the 1960s and 70s. And her confident presence on screen and stage is always a delight. She co-wrote the musical Bombay Dreams, was a memorable Beatrice and Much Ado About Nothing at the National Theatre and has really helped enrich and transform the way we see and celebrate Britishness. Welcome, Mira. Thank you very much. 
What an intro. <laughs> I nearly fell asleep. <laughs> what a career. <laughs> I always like to start by taking you back. Take me back to the childhood. Growing up in a small mining town in the Midlands, Anita and me, for those of us who've read it, was drawn on that childhood. What sort of home was it you were growing up in? Oh, well, I think my experience was very typical of a lot of first-generation kids like me. Um, so inside the home was very Punjabi. All our friends were Punjabi. We ate with our fingers. Punjabi was spoken. And then I put the mask on to leave the house and I'll become this Midland wench and talk like that. And I wanted to be part of the gang. And um, that's the cultural dissonance we all went through. Uh, it's probably no surprise that a lot of us turned into creatives because I think you learn really early on to shape shift, you know, it's how you survive. But also it was a mixed marriage and that your parents had different religious backgrounds, didn't they? Mm -hmm. Yes, my father was a Hindu and my mother was a Sikh, which, you know, wasn't, we did know other couples like that, but my mother's family were fairly strict Sikhs and so they weren't delighted about it. So my parents eloped. They got married in secret, very romantically. It was a bit like a Bollywood film, actually. They were married for 60 years, so it was a very happy and loving marriage. So I grew up surrounded by um, not only incredible love and support, um, but also with that sense of rebellion, I think. Because, um, frankly, they didn't have a leg to stand on when they told me that's not what good Indian girls yes. do, because I just used to look at them and go, really? Really, you're saying that to me? So um, it also imbibed me with... I don't know, this sort of feeling that you could balk at tradition, you could challenge convention and the world wasn't going to fall. In fact, it would make you a more interesting person and lead your life in unexpected ways. I grew up with that in my bones, I think. Now, you were seven when Enoch Powell gave that notorious Rivers of Blood speech in nearby Birmingham. And then the 70s was really marked by anti-racist activism. And I, I remember the police killing of Blair Peach in Southall, the kind of big Southall uprising, the Grunwick strike by Asian women workers. Were you affected by all this growing up? Were you aware of this climate? I don't remember the actual speech, but I certainly remember my parents and all their friends talking about it very seriously. I mean, there was a sort of running gag that why is it that all Asian families have suitcases on top of the wardrobe? It's because we might have to leave in the middle of the night because of Enoch Powell is <laughs> what we thought would happen. Um, and yeah, certainly as a teenager, sort of in the 70s, part of our life was, was the National Front, was the far right groups who were very vocal and marching and present, particularly in the West Midlands. So it contributed to a general sense of not belonging and insecurity and feeling that our lives here were precarious, even though for kids like me, it was the place we'd been born, but we were certainly made to feel we weren't welcome. And so you grew up defended, uh, but in a sort of weird everyday way. It's not like it was the forefront all the time, but it was a constant background hum that you were aware that you wouldn't, you shouldn't walk down that street or you must be careful about saying that or you must keep your head down there. Which is why really the Southall Uprising in 79 was such a seminal moment for me, as was the Grunwick strike led by J.M. Desai, because both those events, for the first time actually, I saw that my community weren't victims and weren't didn't want to be victims anymore. For the first time, we stood up and were vocal and said, we do belong here and we realise we have to fight to belong here. Now, the novel To Kill a Mockingbird, I gather, had a, quite a profound impact on you when you were 13 and particularly the character of, of Atticus Finch, the, uh, the lawyer. Tell me about that. Well, Atticus Finch is my ideal man. That's just the end of that. 
Sorry, Sanjeev, but yes, he is. <laughs> Especially played by Gregory Peck, actually. Perfect casting. Yeah, I knew you were going to yeah, say that. <laughs> yeah, come on. Who would know Gregory Peck? It had a very profound effect to me. I read it when I was 13 and came to it very accidentally. I was in India and my father's best friend was this really cool dude. He was a journalist and he had an even cooler brother who sort of played rock music and had his hair long and smoked strange substances when no one was looking, I think. Now I think about it. <laughs> and um, we used to chat a lot about loads of stuff and I completely worshipped him because he. I just thought, I don't know Indian blokes were like this. He's completely cool and radical and free in his mind. And before I went, he handed me two things and he said, you've really got to, these. you have to have these in your life. They will change your life. One was a copy of Carol King's Tapestry and the other was a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird. And actually, I can both say both did change my life. But I remember reading the book and racism wasn't new to me. I experienced it. I knew about it. We lived it. But for the first time, I understood what the roots of racism were. Because I think what Harper Lee does so brilliantly is in her portrayal of the Ewells, who are, of course, the white trash family that accuse an innocent black man of a crime. I felt sympathy for them. I began to understand that dispossessed hopeless people that are at the bottom of the social pile, like the Ewells, need to have an enemy. Their own lives are so bereft and they are so disenfranchised themselves that it is so much easier to find a scapegoat. And I'd never thought about the mind of the person that hated me because of the colour of my skin. And it began to make me think about where that came from and that not only race was an issue in this, but class was an issue too, that there were so many intersectional things going on that I hadn't been aware of. So for a 13-year-old, that was pretty mind-blowing. And it made me feel sort of stronger, actually, rather than weaker. Now, I want to ask about Asian grandmothers, which loom large in your legend, I feel, I should <laughs> say. And thinking of, you know, the granny in the Kumaras at number 42, which is, you know, it's a character that so many of us of Asian heritage, to be honest, so many cultures, the, the grandmother is this amazing, oh, yeah. formidable person. How important were your own grandmothers in your life? Oh, hugely important, actually. Um, both my maternal and paternal grandmothers at different points in my life came to stay with us in, in England. Um in both cases, just to come and help out because obviously they so miss their children because, you know, I only saw my grandparents maybe five or six times in my entire life, which is really sad, I know, because mm. it was so expensive to go to India. And, of course, by the time we had the money to go frequently, they weren't around anymore. That's one of the great prices, actually, for any immigrant family is that you lose most of your family. You don't have them as a constant presence. So I remember those two occasions really clearly um, neither of them spoke any English so my Punjabi had to become very good when they were around but my god they were formidable they had backbones of steel and the lives that they had led my um, father's grandmother um, was a mother of eight and had to get all of those kids over the border during partition so my father they all lived in Lahore, partition came, they ended up in a refugee camp in Delhi, absolutely poverty stricken. She brought them all up, she educated them all um, and she was uh, the sweetest, kindest woman. And you think, how can somebody who's been through all that not be bitter? It's a funny thing that you find there are two kinds of people, great events like partition or epic, awful trauma makes them either bitter 
insular, hating the world, or they go the other way and they become empathetic and their heart becomes bigger. And she was one of those. And my mother's mother was very mischievous. She had this wicked sense of humour. Weirdly, <laughs> she I would get it all, even though it was in Punjabi. <laughs> And my abiding memory of her is her following my mum was cleaning the house and my grandmother was trotting behind her with a cloth, getting all the bits she'd missed. <laughs> so it was it was both help, but also criticism, which I feel grandmothers do really well. Um, so I think I just became aware through my grandmothers of the weight of sacrifice that had gone before me to bring me to the point that I was able to make free choices in my life. And I thought, I must never, never forget that. I must never forget on whose shoulders I stand to enjoy the privileges I have. I also get a sense that you were always very observant and all these different amazing lives within your family, their friends, and then at school, you kind of soak it all up. So you go on to read English and drama at Manchester University. What year would that have been about? Early 80s? Yes, exactly, yeah. The only students of colour on that course, I think. Um, and a drama, I think it's fair to say, until very recently was, you know, not considered a great choice and certainly a bold choice for an Asian, let alone an Asian woman at the time. Yeah. Were you just very sure of yourself? Like, this is what I'm going to do. There was something driving me. And, you know, for, there were many other kids that would have loved to do that, that I knew. But, you know, the parents were, of course, you do medicine or law or pharmacy, a proper job. Um, because my parents were so extraordinarily liberal and had this rebellious streak, they didn't put that in my way. So I felt lucky to be there. But I, what was the motor? I just, I just had this burning desire to communicate because I think I came from such a misunderstood and misjudged community that I was always having to explain myself, either why are you here? Why don't you go back to where you come from? That's amazing. Why do you wear funny clothes? Uh, do you wait with your fingers? I mean, when you grow up, always being asked what your place is or seeing images of yourself that are so far from who you are, you want to go, no, you've got it wrong. Actually, I'm like this and my mother's like that, and my grandmother's like that and my dad's like that. We are so not the thing you think we are. And I think the only way I'm going to ever change your mind is to is to bring you into my world with stories, is to make you stand in my shoes with empathy. And I think that is what artists do. That is our great gift, that a thousand political speeches may not do what you could do with a good joke or you could do with a story that breaks someone's heart. And I thought, not consciously, but I'm looking back now, I think that was my motor. I don't want to be invisible and I don't want to be misunderstood. And our lives here matter and I'm going to record them, I think. Interesting. This all is so interesting. So after graduation, you wrote a one-woman show, One of Us, with 15 different characters. Is that right? Something like that. You took it to Edinburgh's uh, famous kind of fringe festival. You were spotted as a real talent by a director from London's prestigious Royal Court Theatre. Remind us what the show was about and what happened next. Uh, well, I wrote it with a dear friend of mine, Jackie Shapiro, who was Jewish. And actually, that actually really gave it welly because I think deeply she understood also where this the dispossessed voice was coming from, I think. Um, well, it was about a young Asian girl who's run away from home because she wants to become an actress, a Brummie Asian. And it's all set at her first audition. Um, and she talks to the audience as if they're waiting at the audition with her. Um, I used to enter on a, a pair of roller skates with a hat with a big prawn on my head. 
because you find out she's working at a restaurant called Prawn Fantasy in the Bull Ring, and every dish has got prawn in it. Hence that with the prawn. I know it was completely bloody mad, it really was. But it was this sort of, you know, I just, I never thought I would ever get to be on stage. I, I did it in my last year. It was like my swan song to acting. I had a sensible life mapped out where I was going to do an MA. And I was going to put acting aside because I looked at the world and I thought, who's going to employ me? And it's see women like me. I don't know who will give me a job. I don't know if anyone's interested in what I have to say. So I'm going to just put it all in here and then I'm going to, you know, marry the pharmacist and have 2.4 kids. So that was a real sliding doors moment for me. That moment where that director offered me a job was two weeks away from me going to do my MA. And of course, I jumped and joined the circus. So I'm very lucky. But then I suppose I also made the luck by doing the show. So it's a mixture of both, right? Yeah, definitely. So what happened after as a result of going to the Royal Court with that? The Royal Court was sort of where I cut my teeth. I did, I think, seven or eight shows in a period of about five years, including Serious Money and Birthright with Sarah Daniels. They kept asking me back and it felt like family. And that is absolutely where I cut my teeth. And I think that's why theatre has always been my first love and particularly new writing. So lucky. What a place to learn. I mean, just a you know, a cradle of amazing creativity and a real sense of family. So it was years before I ever went to television. I did all my first decade, really, was totally in the theatre. Well, I saw you in an ITV serial of A Little Princess, you know, the famous sort of children's mm. novel. Also, I think it was Nigel Havers and Maureen Lippman is the terrifying headmistress of the school. I think that was 1986. Was that your first TV role? I think that pretty must must have been. Yeah, yeah. Um how, what what was it like getting that break in television? You know, what was the culture like? What were the roles like? I remember very little about it. It was a small role. I mean, I played the Aya. Um, so my, all my scenes... Quite a young, sexy Aya, for me to say so. Well, you thank you very much. Long I made the most of my moment. <laughs> no, 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 Mr. Sahib. You have to leave all your books. Oh, Anna, please. You'll be such a comfort to me when I'm all alone in that... In that place... Surrounded by fog, rain and cold. Thinking of you and Papa. Mrs. Sahib, you'll be far too busy to think about us. Learning how to be a lady. I do remember having to cry on Nigel Havers as he died and <laughs> covering him with a little bit of snot, I'm sorry to say. Because I, you know. Um, it was a very small part, actually. And if I was sort of, I remember thinking, oh, A, you don't get any rehearsal, that's weird. And B oh, we shoot up sequence, that's weird. I mean, I knew nothing about television. And every take I played like it was my last. And never mind that it was a close-up or a long shot. I had no idea of the technicality. So I was very green. I made lots of mistakes, but I was lucky enough that I hit the industry just as people were opening out to different stories and, and, different, and minorities, really, because of what was happening in London and the GLC. So suddenly people were more interested than I had been in, in welcoming in different voices. I made loads of mistakes, but I was surrounded by very kind and professional people that were allowing me to learn on the job. 
And just for those who don't remember, the GLC, the Greater London Council, run for many years by Ken Livingstone, lots of funding for for arts and and artists in London. Um, Now, I think it was in the 80s as well that you were part of a collective of British Asian women writers who met in London. Uh, Tanika Gupta, I think, the playwright, was another. I think you're one of three people I've interviewed on arts programmes who've who've been in that group. But how did it come about and how important was it to finding your voice as as a writer and as a performer? Oh, actually, I'm so glad you brought that up. It was pretty seminal. Um, I can't even remember how I got invited, maybe through my good friend Pamela Veer, who used to work for the GLC, who'd mentioned it. And we used to meet in Hungerford House every other Thursday. I remember that too. And I was suddenly... That's on the South Bank, yeah, yeah. And I was suddenly in a room of all these other British Asian women, some who'd come from India, but mostly British Asian, who were just absolutely finding their little baby feet and sharing our experiences and thinking, would this resonate with any of you? Does does this mean anything? Is it worth putting down? And finding out that actually there was a worth. We were we were creating history and we didn't know it. And to record it was so important. And I think those grassroots groups actually are, are so vital for things like that because you are alone. You, you don't know that you're part of a movement until you start finding other people that are singing from the same hymn sheet. And all of a sudden, it's like coming home. I had that feeling with goodness gracious me. I suddenly had shorthand with people, having spent years giggling about things in a corner, thinking, well, I must be mad because no one else finds this funny. And then suddenly being in a room and people go, I get you. To be understood and to be got is a beautiful thing. We're going to talk about Goodness Gracious Me shortly. I want to talk about your first screenplay, though, Paji on the Beach, made into a film by Gorinda Chadder in 1994. It followed a group of three generations of British Asian women and girls on a day trip to Blackpool. I will declare my interest, which is my mother, yes. had a terrific role in it. And she was fantastic. <laughs> Lalita Ahmed. And I remember her coming home and raving about your talent, this amazing young woman who writes so well. Um, how important was that screenplay to you? Oh, hugely important. And I'm sure Gorinda would say the same. Um, and I can't believe how easy it was to get the commission. My God, I wish we, we were back in those days. Um, Channel 4 Films. Channel 4 Films, Karen Bambra. And um, I remember going in, I'd, I'd written a screen too called My Sister Wife, which had done very well and picked up a couple of awards. So she was interested to meet me. And I literally pitched it saying I wanted to write something about the day trips that I used to go on which I did with my family to Blackpool coming from the Midlands you know we were always trying to find the coast somewhere because we were so far from the sea and she said yep yeah, yeah I'll give you some money to write the script and this is a 10 minute meeting that never happens now so mm-hmm. very again lucky to hit hit the hit the right moment hello sisters as coordinator of the and again, you know, we look back at that film and, and think, wow, we just ticked so many boxes there in terms of trying to talk about stuff that we all felt was going on in the community, in our lives, and really wasn't being talked about. And it did ruffle some feathers. There were many people, many men, that thought we shouldn't be discussing things like domestic violence and interracial relationships and all of that. But Mm. it was happening. And I'm so incredibly proud of it. I watch it now, and of course it feels slightly dated in places, but it has such spirit because we never thought we'd have another chance to say all of that stuff. So we just threw it out there. And I think... 
that spirit of anarchy and a fresh voice is just riven through the film and it still has great heart, I think. So we're, we're enormously proud of it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a delightful film. People still come and mention that film to me and say they're, they're amazed that my mother was in it because they really have good feelings and memories of it. I'm struck as well, all the way through, all these different examples you give of stories you've noticed of people you've met, this talent of yours of finding and telling interesting stories. And you had this wonderful role in a docudrama as the fraudster Gioti Delori, the secretary who stole four million pounds from her Goldman Sachs bosses and they didn't notice. I should say I met her actually when I went to do a prison visit. Oh, she was did. quite a character. Um, and your last novel, The House of Hidden Mothers, was about India's surrogacy industry. Is that eye for real story something you've always had? You mentioned feeling the importance of wanting to correct the misunderstanding of, of British Asian people. Well, I mean, I used to sit around hearing my mum and dad's friends gossip and, you know, every five minutes there'd be this amazing story that would come out that could be a novel or a film or a character. And I used to think, why is nobody writing this down? Why is nobody telling that story? And I think every... Every misunderstood or dispossessed community feels that, that there is so much that is untold and unsaid. And as we know, history belongs to the people that get to the pen first, doesn't it? So if they're not recorded, then they're lost. But they're also just interesting roles, aren't they? You know, yeah. some of these, you know, playing villains is always much more fun. Much than just more fun. I'm still waiting for the call. I am desperate to be in one of those sort of fantasy sagas in sort of either old crone with bad teeth and long nails or, you know, <laughs> big goddess with terrifying. I mean, I'm desperate to do something like that. The villains definitely get the best roles. The Holland Renaissance poet Langston Hughes is an inspiration, and I gather there's a poem that you you have up on your wall. Would you read it to us? I would love to. It's called Harlem, and it's short, but my God, is it powerful. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun, or fester like a saw and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? And that says it That's all. That's quite something to have on your wall. On my wall. And look, here, here's my file packs. Do you remember those folks from when I first came to London? And there it is written on the very first page that I carried around with me. That poem really spoke to me, actually, because it speaks of what happens to people that aren't heard, that aren't seen. Um, the dream deferred is what I worried would happen to me because I grew up surrounded by a lot of disappointed and unfulfilled women, particularly. Um, a lot of my aunties, I would see, what had such potential... And it was never realised, it was never translated. You know, somebody who was a poet in India would end up being a cleaner here. Someone who, you know, was an actor in India would end up driving a bus 
here. So there were a lot of dreams that were deferred and I was terrified. I would look at these women's lives that had been curtailed and thought, I just don't want that to be me. I do not want to wake up at 50 and have be littered with lost potential and broken dreams. I don't mind if I fail. And of course I will fail lots of times and I still do, but I will so regret it if I don't try. And I, and it also that poem speaks of the anger that comes with not being heard and not being seen. I mean, we're surrounded by it at the moment. Well, we'll talk about that as well. So let's talk about the pioneering comedy. Goodness gracious me, started out on radio, went to television, the Kumars at number 42, bringing Asian families, Asian experiences absolutely into the mainstream. A a generation grew up laughing at the sketches, white people as well as people of Asian heritage, quoting all those catchphrases like kiss my chuddies (laughs) and a small aubergine. (laughs) How how did that show come about? A happy collision again. I had been working on a show called The Real McCoy. What would you say were the qualities that have made you such a source of comfort to your army of fans? Well, I shoot from the hip. None of this Auntie Claire lovey-shubby pile of crap. If some small-brained person has made a complete bog of their lives, I tell them what I think and how they should put it right. (laughs) Yes, you are a particular authority on marital problems, are you not? Yes. Marital, sexual, animal, mineral, and lots of vegetables. Keep the bowels open and the legs shut. And nobody has any problems anymore. Which was actually Britain's first black sketch show. Um, And I was a guest on there, quite rightly. um, But I was writing for it too. And just had the most brilliant time. It was so groundbreaking. And I, I don't think, goodness gracious me, would have happened had the real McCoy not happened and opened those doors. And Corvinda Gear was also on that show. And um, much as we loved being on the show, uh, we used to say, wow, but there's, wouldn't it be great to do our version of this? Because, you know, there is so much stuff culturally that is so different and unheard and funny. Um, so we chatted about that. And Anil Gupta um, was a script editor on that show. And, and he, we talked to him about that. He thought that was a good idea. He found Sanjeev and Nissin Sawney, who was part of the original crew, and Nina. They were all doing stand-up in West London. And then all together with John Plowman, that's how we got together. But I think from initial idea to actually having a pilot done was quite a few years. We had loads and loads of hoops to, to run through. And there is an apocryphal story that when we first pitched it to John Plowman, he said, Erasian's funny. He swears he didn't say that. I think was... What he meant to say was, I don't know what that is, Asian sketch show. And to be fair, neither did we. Um, but we didn't want a label. We just said, well, we know what we've been doing. These are the sketches and the stand-up that we've all been doing collectively. We'll put them all together and see what you think. We did a live show uh, in Hammersmith that we peppered with our friends. It went down a storm. He said, I get what you mean now. We still weren't given a pilot. We were then given uh, the week-ending holiday slot over the summer for six weeks. On Radio 4. On Radio yeah. 4. On those days, people used to go off on their summer break. And it suddenly became this huge hit. And I think that's when the BBC thought, aha. Now, we don't know how many Asians are listening to Radio 4 at 10.30 on Friday night. I can tell you pretty much none then. This means that Middle England is listening to this. And if Middle England gets this, then we might be able to do something with it. So then we got a pilot. And after the pilot, we then got a series. Serena, back in the Punjab, 
in my village we never had anything like breast pumps and all this no mm. if you wanted to express milk you had to get down on all fours and wait for the farm hands oh, to <laughs> you know he refuses to give us any oh, grandchildren he's got no. geriatric seed what he can wants we it was a slog it was a slog but we got there. You got there and it was brilliant. You mentioned earlier, you know, some men being unhappy about some of the stuff in Paji on the beach. And I know a lot of Asian women artists who say they get grief for not representing the community appropriately. Um, and I was remembering back, there was a little row over a dream sequence in Paji on the beach when some Hindus kicked up a fuss about someone behaving disrespectfully in a temple. Now, there's a quote from you on IMDb, so I'm hoping it's authentic. A lot of old Asian men don't like me very much. They throw tomatoes at me in Tesco. <laughs> <laughs> have, have people tried to shut you down and how have you dealt with that? They certainly do. There were, there were um, some demonstrations against Paji on the beach and it was all the older men of the community that didn't think that they should should be a film that showed us behaving badly. Um, and then mothers and their daughters just walked right past them and went in and saw it in their droves. And I think for me, that was the vote of confidence I needed. I mean, you know, it is about context and it's a really difficult line to tread because of course, when we're in so few things, everything becomes representative. So you're always aware of, on the one hand, the weight of representation and on the other hand wanting to speak your truth as an artist and truth is sometimes really uncomfortable if there were more things on then it wouldn't become representative if we would just had our stories out there all the time then actually it would free us up to to, to tell more truth it's still a bit of a catch-22 that we're in but the answer definitely isn't censorship but you have to be mm. able to defend everything you do Speaking of Asian men, nice ones. You are, of course, <laughs> married to your long-time collaborator, Sanjeev Bhaskar, who, of course, was in Goodness Gracious Me. You were even in that film yesterday, last year. What is it like mixing work and play all the time that way? Oh, we're hilarious. I mean, we just tell jokes <laughs> all day. I mean, you know, it's joke, joke, joke from morning to I mean, I think that's the impression people get. They don't, they don't, they don't see us taking out the recycling or having rows, but, of course, that happens too. I think the great advantage, actually, is that, and I th a lot of actor couples say this, is that it is someone that truly understands the ups and downs and the frustrations of, of the business, who does understand that you can just get depressed for no reason because you've had five ideas rejected this week or you didn't get that job, um, who will share in the joy of it and who will get that sometimes, you know, staring into space is actually working because you're thinking. You're actually thinking. So there's a lot you don't have to explain, I think, with a fellow creative. And that's certainly part of the joy. And I think, you know, we sort of get family and we, we get each other's family. And we adore each other's family, actually. And that's been one of the great joys, too. Now, three years ago, you said you felt TV roles were going backwards, having talked about the 90s when it seemed actually things were opening up. And I think around the time that you did this interview, it was in The Telegraph, the Rochdale drama about sexual grooming had recently come out. Is that how you still feel? Do you feel TV roles have, have narrowed in a way? It's really hard to say. I mean, the Rochdale one is, is a very good example of the, the argument we just discussed, which is about representation. You know, obviously that was a story that needed to be told. Um, obviously it was. I think... For me, what I found 
difficult is that there was no other story on that year that featured brown men. Um, there probably may have been a couple of appearances of terrorists, but actually when the only two programmes on in a year that feature brown men at all are about terrorists and paedophiles, then you are in a difficult circumstance. I also thought it was sad that, you know, one of the people that cracked this whole grooming ring and pushed for prosecution was a Pakistani man. Nazir Afsal, yes. the chief prosecutor for the Northwest. Now, there was an opportunity to actually make him one of the key figures in that drama, and that would have given it context. Instead, it was a tiny role. That was a missed opportunity. We didn't have another good Asian man to, to counteract the bloody awful ones who were rightly prosecuted and put away for what they did. So I'm not saying the story sh shouldn't be told, they should, but it is, it is about balance and context always. Yeah. Now, you did an interview in 2015, which has always haunted me, which you said, in my 20s, I thought maybe I could win an Oscar. That's a possibility. In my 30s, I thought I could probably win a BAFTA, I think, if I work really hard and get the right <laughs> kind of role. Then in, then in my 40s, I thought I'd really like that job. Yeah. And you are so successful. But... And I would c confess, I f maybe it, it haunts me because I feel the same, um, not about winning an Oscar, but in mm. my own career path, that mm. you've kind of had to write your own work. Mm -mm. Is there a sense of frustration? Yeah. Even though you're so successful? Well, again, it's all about context. Yeah, I, um, I veer between feeling incredibly lucky that I can even make a living from something I never thought I'd be able to do. And that 95% of the profession at any one time is not working. I never, never take that for granted. On the other hand, it is that, it is still that it's it's hard work all the time to open those doors and to get the roles that don't necessarily say Asian on them. It's still hard work. It's even harder to get the stories on and the scripts made, I have to tell you. It's, yeah, I've been working for three years on three different ideas, all of which I really genuinely thought I had a shot and were ticking all those boxes about. We need those different stories. And yes, we, we're all for diversity. They get commissioned. And then when it actually comes to making them, it doesn't happen. The excuses are running thin. On the one hand, you go, I can accept maybe it's not good enough. Tell me how to make it better. I will always try and make it better. But what I don't want is the quota. We're already doing another Asian thing, so we're not seeing yours. That I don't know how to counteract. That is what makes me tired. As anyone knows, there's a beautiful saying that, you know, when the, the battles you fight, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're planting an acorn for a tree that, whose shade you'll never sit under, but your grandchildren will. And it is sort of that, because when I look at it relatively, if I think about the actors that came before me, the Saeed Jaffrey's and the Russian Seths and your mum, and the Jamila Marcy's, what choices did they have? Now, they will look at us and go, you are so lucky. Yes, we are. So I think with every generation, it gets better. But you must never forget that there's always more to improve. So I never want to, I don't ever want to be a whinger. I'm really grateful. But on the other hand, like John Boyega so eloquently showed us, sometimes you just do have to say it like it is. And he worried about not ever working again. Well... 
by saying That's, it. That was going to be my my next question. Mm. So let me let me just for those who may not be fully aware. So we're talking as the Black Lives Matters protests sparked by the killing of George Lloyd in Minnesota have gone global, opening up a very international conversation about racism in all kinds of careers um, and spheres. And people could have seen the Star Wars actor John Boyega was at one of those demonstrations in London saying, I don't care if my career is destroyed, I have to speak out. Even saying that, and I know you are an, you've are you been an activist all your life. How do you reflect on where we are then in, in your profession, in acting in particular? I think we're at a point where the, the casting process has really opened out. And I so welcome that. And I think that's one great hurdle that is changing. I think the, the, the deeper issues actually, and this is the reason that I think those scripts that really count don't get commissioned, the different voices, is because the people that commission them are still in the old boys club and still have a certain version of what they think we should be writing. You know that thing I said about having shorthand? It is that, you know, when you're the only person in the room so often, you know, it's somehow your responsibility to explain everything and fix everything. You don't want to be the only person in the room. You either want to be with people like you that know that shorthand or people that are enlightened enough to know that shorthand. That's the next hurdle. Um, and a lot of people have been saying that um, on Twitter, actually, and, and other places, when they've been reading statements from various companies saying, we support you, we're out there. They're actually calling them out and going, mm, how many how many people of colour have you got on your board? Or I left your company because of this and this. It's really interesting that people now feel emboldened to call that out. I see a lot of goodwill and cooperation in our industry. I don't see... I don't see um, deliberate blocking. All I see is, I see people that are trying really hard, but I think that, I think unless the deep, deep structures and the people that make the decisions and hand out the money until that that is as diverse as it can be, then we are always going to come across these blocks. It, I just want to reach that stage where we don't have to be explaining stuff all the time. Just talking a bit more about casting, you were saying you thought it was improving again. And I think a, a big hurdle was crossed in the last year or so with colourblind historical drama casting. So, you know, um, Armando Iannucci's David Copperfield. Beautiful film. And, you know, um, I was thinking The Hollow Crown with um, Sophie Okinedu mm -hmm. as Queen Margaret. How important is is that? And have you noticed that that difference in, in the way that historical drama is opening up, both in the kind of stories it's telling, but also in colourblind casting? Yeah, that, that is one of the huge pleasures, I think. Of, I mean, I thought David Copperfield was such an exquisite piece of work. But, you know, the, the, a lot of people didn't like it. I mean, there was a fair amount of backlash against it from the people that get very upset and frightened about... <laughs> you'll be asking people to suspend their disbelief that a man can fly and, you know, people go into space and they can't quite grasp the fact that there may have been people of colour in Britain at that time. I mean, that's the thing about how we teach our history, because, of course, there were. They may have been a small band, but they were there. You know, at every little push, and that was a big hurdle, you are going to get the people that get frightened by it and upset by it and oppose it. And I and I, that, I feel really sad about that because it's, it's just about expanding your horizons and actually knowing a little bit more about history and actually revising what your version of 
of history might be. And it opens up so many possibilities of rebooting old dead things, which can suddenly get this incredible, joyous energy from different people coming into it, the way that David Copperfield felt so fresh. Actually, we can create rather beautiful stuff when we when we take those blinkers off. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's actually something to celebrate. Now, you wrote and performed a monologue at the Old Vic Theatre about the NHS in 2018 called Rivers. And watching it today, I was struck by how it seems even more poignant now when we think about the COVID-19 deaths affecting Black and Asian people significantly more, um, the number of medics of, of mm. Black and Asian heritage affected. It's about a midwife working in a hospital a week after Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. Tell me what inspired it before we hear you perform an extract. Actually, the minute that I was approached to write something, and it was um, Lalita Chakrabarti and Adrian Lester who curated the whole thing and this fantastic celebration of the NHS at 50, now very timely, as you say. I knew that I wanted to do something about that first generation of, of, of immigrants that had come over and were invited over, ironically, by Enoch Powell, uh, to come and fill those uh, this growing NHS. Um, and it just seemed even more important now. And I'm so glad that they repeated them online for those stories to be heard. Uh, because actually... They were the backbone of that that most precious jewel. They they built it. So it's told from the point of view of an Indian midwife, both dealing with the racism that she comes across from the women she's trying to help in labour, but also with her backstory of her family that she's left behind. Would mm. you read us an extract? Sure. I was an averagely good Hindu. Obviously, the divorce lost me a few karma points, a few million, pushed me right back onto the reincarnation scale. Now I'm probably coming back as a mosquito or a guppy or Enoch Powell's head lice. Who knows? But I always did my morning prayer when I remembered, went to the temple on holy days, even did Garvachot every year. Oh, that's the annual fast that Hindu women do for their husband's long life. No food or water to pass your devoted lips from sunrise to moonrise just to make sure your husband stays well and well stays. I stopped doing the fast after my husband left me, but apparently the bastard's still alive. That just shows you, faith sometimes isn't enough. Sometimes you need the antibiotics, the splints, the stitches, the surgeons, the safety net, that when your body lets you down, someone is there to catch you, mend you, save you. When Mahatma Gandhi was asked what he thought of Western civilization, he said, I think it would be a good idea. I know, he always went for the gag, did our Mahatma. And of course, in many ways, he was right. If 300 years of colonization hadn't bled our country dry, I wouldn't have had to come here for an economic transfusion. Britain can afford to be civilized now. But it's also true that you can judge a country by how it treats its most vulnerable the young and the old, the immigrants and the sick. And whatever else Britain did, and it's a long list, it has done this, the NHS. And along with Shakespeare and crumpets, it is the jewel in its crown. But not the Kohinoor, obviously, because that was also stolen from India. But the NHS made me love Britain again, made me want to come here and pour myself into this principle and by working for it, I thought maybe Britain would eventually love me back. Just a little. 
Thank you, Mira Sile, for your time and your insight and your generosity. Thank you, Samira. This podcast was made by Intelligence Squared. The producer was Farah Jassat. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe. Tell your friends and your family to check it out. And we'd really appreciate it if you could also take a very quick moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This helps us to raise the profile of the podcast and it helps other people to find the show. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.